Welcome to the North Leeds Jits podcast. As always, we're joined by Professor Mike. Hi, Professor Mike. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm good, man. Yeah. And um, we're joined by my good friend, uh, Kane Daniels, who, uh, second time I've interviewed him, obviously first time he's been on, on this podcast. And um, Kane's, a, Kane's a strength and conditioning coach um, with some amazing background and expertise we'll dive into and talk a lot about coaching and, and his background. So thanks for being here, Kane. No worries, Mike. Thanks for having me. Man, awesome to have you. So, Kane, okay, do you want to just like do a quick intro about your background and who you are, and then we'll dive a bit deeper into different bits? Yeah, so um, I probably won't go too far back to bar everyone, but ultimately, like from a career standpoint, um, we've been working in summer conditioning now for the past eight years. Um, so, pretty much graduated from Leeds Met in. When was that now? 2012, I think, 2013. Um, and yeah, took took my first job in strength conditioning with Huddersfield Giants. Um, I was there for five seasons. I worked my way up from the academy all the way up to the first team in that time um, to become like head of strength conditioning at the age of, I think, 24, 25, wow. I think it was. Um, and then Went from there, went to OKR, had the opportunity to kind of head that up. Um, so did that for the previous two seasons. And then in the last year from, from that really, just kind of gone more towards kind of general population and opened up a small little studio for myself where I'm training people and clients and athletes out of there at the minute. So a little bit of a change, but still still enjoyable, still got to coach, you know, still got to train people, which is what I enjoy, so yeah. And you come from a real kind of a sporting background family, right? Your dad's been doing martial arts since he's like yeah. super young and your mum into fitness and you got a sister that's into yeah. jiu-jitsu or some stuff. Tell me yeah, a bit yeah. about like your family. Yeah, so God, growing up, um, very much health and fitness related family. So my mum and my dad, both, both personal trainers, both teach a lot of classes, still do that now. Um, my sister as well, like into fitness and, and training herself, not as much as my mum and dad really. Um, but I was always probably only going to go one way based off that. So um, I myself have, have taught some classes as well, like as I was at university, done a little bit of personal training as well, but mainly kind of teaching freelance classes. So yeah, very much. What did you study at uni, mate? Sports science. Oh, sports science. Yeah. And did you always kind of know you wanted to go and go ahead and do that? Or was it something that was like a bit of stepping stones for other um, stuff? Yeah, good question. I, I wanted to be an athlete myself, to be honest. That's really what I was like aiming to do. So I played I played a few sports, you know, at a decent level, but never quite enough to, to kind of make it professionally. So I did a lot of athletics, played football, and obviously did some martial arts as well. But just didn't quite excel enough in, in one of them. So, yeah. What, what do you attribute that to? Because I've got a theory around kind of specialization and yeah. my own kids. So was that because you did quite a lot of stuff or yeah. was it, yeah, what was it? It was it was probably that, to be honest. Yeah. Like when I was when I was doing one of them, I was always thinking about not being at the other, right. you know? So I, I kind of burnt myself out, got really bad knees now because of it, like right. tendonitis in my tendons, just because I never had a day off. I was either tie boxing and then I was sprinting the next day, then I was playing football, then I was doing it in the reverse. And so it just kind of, 
never could really focus on one, never really knew what one I wanted to focus on the most. So yeah, ultimately that's kind of probably put it down to, but you know, even if I would have focused on one, you, you know, you're never guaranteed to, to make what it. What were your best at? If you could go back now, what were you best at? And then would you do it all again? Or would you pick that one, bend the others off and like give it 100%, what would you do? You know what, probably probably naturally gifted at probably tie boxing and boxing probably. Right. If I really if I really think about it. Um but I'm not sure I ever had that desire to like wanna fight for a living. Mm. Does that mean it's I, tough, tough. I enjoyed right. the training. Yeah. But whether to actually, you know, my life to be purely about that, I was thinking, am I really cut out for that? Mm. You know, just every week you know, or gearing up for a fight and just, you know, the stuff that comes with that, I was thinking, I'm not sure is it, if it's really worth it. And you, you really need to, you need to want it massively yeah. to, to do that. It was, it was the same for me in Thai boxing, like love training, love the atmosphere yeah. and getting after it in the hard rounds. But then when it came to like competition stuff, I was like, I hate, I hated the prep. Like suddenly it turned into like, yeah. suddenly my, the fun sparring we were doing yeah. turned into just like something else. Yeah. And like every time I was getting ready for like a competition or anything, it's like, it wasn't enjoyable anymore. Mm. And it has to consume you, doesn't it? Because it's only the kind of top 1% ever kind of make yeah. anything out of it. So you could be yeah. that journeyman boxer, yeah. just getting damaged, like yeah. I mean, earning nothing. Mm. Well, that's yeah. no fun. No, Starving exactly. all the time and training exactly. all the time and never quite making it. It's yeah. quite tough. Work, so. so how was it you went from, you know, I'm sure lots of people get sports science degrees, right? Not many end up, uh, you know, uh, yeah, all yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I mean, 24 years old, head of the Huddersfield Giants programs. Yeah. So what, what were you doing differently, you think, compared to your peers? It's always quite difficult to answer that from your own point of view. Because you don't need to be humble, Kane, right? Well, you, <laughs> only, you, only, you only know what you kind of know. So yeah. I just had a massive hunger and desire to, to get to the level I wanted to get to. Mm. Um, and how did that present itself? Like, Well... <sighs> some luck as well you know you've got to you've got to put yourself out there and be in the right place at the right time which I, th I think i did you know like when i was at university for example i was always reaching reaching out to clubs and their staff trying to build up a relationship stuff like that so rather than just kind of getting my degree and having no experience like a lot of people did to be fair they just thought they could rely on getting a degree in sports science or strength and conditioning and then they just walk into a job which is just it's just not going to happen so I mean, probably since I was probably about 15, 16, I was coaching, even at a, a low level. So that's just your local football team, your local rugby team. It doesn't have to be at an elite level. And that's yeah. what everyone wants. They want the tracksuit and the, the initials and stuff like that. Just, you know, there's so many local clubs that would absolutely love to have a coach that was, you know, exceptionally skilled in terms of, for example, youth athletic development to come in and do some free sessions. Yeah. You can put that on your CV and then all of a sudden you've got that experience. So yeah, you need to be hungry and passionate, but 90% of people are that do degrees, to be fair. They're, they're hungry and passionate about what they do. It's about putting yourself out there a little bit more. And also rather than just saying to them, what can you offer me? Do it do it in the reverse. You know, a lot right. of times you, you, you go to someone and you're just kind of saying, right, well, this is what I can do for you or vice versa. But the thing is, if they want to learn stuff from you as well, offer that. So mm -hmm. rather than just being like a one-way relationship. Um, so I think that's really important. And just making sure you coach. So if you're doing if you're doing a sports science degree and you want to be an S&C coach, 
go on personal training or go and teach freelance classes at clubs. I think that's really important. Get yourself in front of people, get yourself coaching, different injuries, ages, disabilities, whatever. That's massively important to do and there's so many opportunities to do it. So I mean, what you're saying there, I think is, you know, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but you need to have the experience too to back it up. Yeah. And I think, you, you know, age is just a number, isn't it? Yeah. When you say head of the Huddersfield Giants kind of S&C program at 24, it's like, whoa, but you've had like 10 yeah. years experience before yeah. then 100%. of coaching. That's yeah. massive, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And it doesn't, it doesn't really change. That's the thing. Coaching is coaching. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're teaching someone to front squat, who's a 14 year old recreational swimmer and teaching someone who's a front squat who plays professional rugby for England, it's still ultimately the same coaching points. Right. It's just your ability to, to form relationships with players. That's the main thing. Like, you know, you, you can know all the knowledge in the world about training and programming, but you need to build good quality relationships with the people first. Cause there's a lot of good coaches out there, but can they get that buy-in from the athlete? That's the most important thing. Like at the end of the day, yeah, they want you to coach them. You need to get them fitter, faster, stronger, but they also want to know that you care about them or that you can have a laugh with them off the back of that. Mm -hmm. And it's getting that balance. What's which... that saying you always say about that? Yeah, well, it's, it's I always mention basically you, Kane, yeah, in the yeah, podcast yeah. we did. Like literally maybe... 60% of the podcast, I'm like, man, I hope Kane doesn't listen to this because all I do is quote him. <laughs> Misquoting him. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, something you said, um, they won't... Uh, they they don't, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a great, it's a great set. Is it yours? It's not mine. I've definitely <laughs> stole could, it. Yeah, I've definitely mine. stole it from Just make it yours. It's, um, it's, it's so true. Mm. It's so true. Did it was... Was that always inherent knowledge for you or was there a time where you like, I've learned this now? Um, it wasn't probably, I was probably quite like, what's the word, um, authority, authoritarian, would you say, you know, in terms of how I coach. So especially when I was, when I was younger and I was working at the academy level, I liked to come in the room and for them to, there was that level of respect and it's like, they'd all be quiet and they'd all kind of, I'd start talking and be listening and stuff like that. And I wouldn't want necessarily loads of fun or them blasting out music and stuff. So I thought, why? Well, that seems to work. So can I carry that on? As soon as I jumped into like dealing with men, that, that doesn't work. Yeah, You can't say to them, boys, you, you need to keep it down a little bit or you need to turn the music down. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't work. So, but it probably was a learned skill and a learned process. But as soon as you learn it, you, you wouldn't go back. That's for mm. sure. And I just think it depends who you're working with. As you say, if you're working with young kids, sometimes they need that level of discipline, especially if they haven't got it anywhere else in their lives. You know, so you almost become like a teacher and a, and a kind of a, you try and develop them as people as well as athletes. So that's what I tried to do, especially. So it's all right, them, yeah, getting them to crawl, getting them to move well and, and learn how to do pulls and chins and rows or whatever. But are you developing them as people? Are they getting, you know, are they becoming respectful humans? Um, and to do that, you probably can't let them be having the music on, you know, 100% volume doing what they want, it needs to be controlled and coached and, and stuff like that. So, but first thing I want, they all know what they're doing to a degree. You need to have more fun with them. Like I've had, I've had them take the tops off, do an upper body beach session. And like five years ago, I never would have, would have been like, it's all about performance. You've got to do this, this and this to tick, to tick yeah. off what you need to do on the weekend. But if you've lost six games in a row, for example, the last thing they want to come in and do is squat RDL, bench and chin yep. mm. they just want to get the tops off 
do some bicep curls. We all want to do that, don't we? Exactly. Not my top. I don't want to take my top off. Right for the UK anyway. But seriously, well, so that's... It's a learned skill, but it's, it's kind of obvious now as well that you'd ever mm. not... You, at the end of the day, you're dealing with humans. But it's your job as a coach, I suggest, to adapt to your client, right? Like, you know, it's not the client's job to adapt to you. You've got to... 100%. And that's what experience gives you, doesn't it? It's just exactly the same for us. Even the difference between our LC1 class and LC2, that kind of 5 to 7 and 8 to 10... It's a, it's a different delivery. It yeah. has to be. Yeah. The eight to ten year olds are in the middle of the bottom and the juniors and teens. So we talk about them. You know, if you act like the juniors and teens, then we'll we'll treat you like it, and that's what they want. Yeah. We're big kids and we're eight. Yeah. And we talk about the titchy witchy ones, don't we? Yeah, yeah. We're only seven, but mm. to them they're older. The little ones, they're just nuts. Yeah. And they need that little bit of like sharp kind of control. Yeah. For that authoritative figure, mm-hmm. I think they need that. Yeah. And parents want us to give it, want us to do it as well. Like they're always saying kids out of hand can you help mm. it's like no problem bring it mm. in yeah similar to what you're saying about the kind of um the development side of stuff like yeah similar to how we see jiu-jitsu right it's like it's a tool to develop better people 100 um mm. character as well yeah characters come up a lot in the podcasts we've done recently with like with like a uh, bradley hill come up uh, one's like a high level competitor in the UK we, also, we asked him like what it means to be a martial artist and he was like it doesn't matter if you're a world champion or if you're you know mm. day one white belt if you're the kind of person that comes in and is looking to develop your character then that's what martial arts is going to give you yeah and, and rugby league can be can be very similar to that ultimately it probably attracts you know, the same type of young kid to be fair mm. growing up um, so our job our job as well as you know creating athletes to play for the first team is that there's a lot of players that won't do that and it's what they then go on to do after that so right. i've i know for a fact which is really like humbling for me is that i've inspired a couple of young players that haven't quite gone on to make it as professional rugby players but they've gone on to make it as personal trainers awesome yeah, because while i've been training them they've been so inspired asking me loads of questions about what we're doing that they've then gone on to make careers themselves out of that, which is which is brilliant. Well, that's your influence, isn't it? And that that is the the hallmark of a great coach, isn't it? Is having that positive influence no matter what yeah. direction people go. Yeah. And I think there's a real. You know, I talk a lot about a book that I was bought for me when I had my two my first son, called Raising Boys by Steve Biddulph. It's a great book. It talks about the importance of that coach role model, particularly for young boys. Yeah, she'll have him rugby, right? Yeah, they need that, and it can't just be the dad. Mm-hmm. has to be the coach yeah. because you can speak to them on a different level yeah. and ultimately that coach then just like a teacher does it helps shape their future yeah um, and it's so rewarding you're not, you, don't, you don't get that from much else do you? you know you can be a teacher in a school you probably get a similar kind of long term effect but as well especially if you if you leave clubs I've been at quite a few clubs now like in the intro I didn't necessarily mention every, every club I've been at but um, for players to then still contact you years after when they're working with other coaches since you, yep. they still come to you for mm. bits of advice or sessions, then that's another thing where you think, you know what, that's more than anything. Because when you're at a club, I always say that you're pretty much just like a finger in some water. And once you, once it's out, no one necessarily knows it's been in there. Do you know I mean? You don't necessarily leave a legacy at every, every club you're at, especially as an SNC coach when it's such a kind of cutthroat industry. But it's the relationships, it's the players, it's that kind of stuff that, you know, is the most rewarding, I'd say. So tell me about going in. I know you were at um, Hull for uh, for a while, but... Um, I was at Hull for two years. Yeah. I was at Huddersfield for Huddersfield, five. Huddersfield, sorry. Yeah. 
So you were coming up through the ranks at Huddersfield, right? Yeah. And when you got that uh, head strength and conditioning role, I imagine you knew a lot of people there. You yeah. knew like most people. Everyone. Yeah. Was there ever a feeling like, was there ever a bit of, um, uh, what's the thing? Well, you don't kind of feel like, oh, am I right for this role? Like, like imposter syndrome, like being so young, kind of in a such a high level position. Um, to a degree, mate. But yes and no, because I've worked with some people in roles, probably in in roles technically that would be higher than my role. So obviously, in in rugby league, normally you, you start with the academy, or you might start with scholarship, which are like under sixteens, then academy, which was under nineteens at the time, and then you probably go into like an assistant first team role where you're not in charge of everything, but that's kind of your primary delivery of, of first team stuff, and then you obviously come into a head role. But in the time that I'd kind of been there, there's, there was quite a lot of coaches that came and went very quickly. And for me, in terms of kind of my theoretical knowledge of, of performance and strength conditioning, I was thinking you're doing the players a, a kind of a disservice here with what you're making them do. You know, mm. quite a lot of players are breaking down and some of the practice I don't agree with. So because of that, I felt like I was going into the role thinking that I can improve on what they'd had, especially the direct replacement that the, the guy that came in, was only there for three months before I took over. So they were crying out for a change. Right. So it's like a good time to to take on that role because mm-hmm. everyone was thinking, I'm br-. for example, like I'll just give you a quick example, but a lot of rugby players are stuck in extension in the lower back. Um, that's just how they are. The ribs are up, you know, yeah. and that's just kind of the way they're built. So the last thing you want to do to, to an athlete like that is load them in extension. So i.e. make them back squat because it's going to force more and more extension, which is going to put them at risk of, first of all, back injuries, but also hamstring injuries. Mm. And the coach before me was just really, really heavily biased on everyone back squats. And it's not necessary. That's how it used to be, didn't it? Like yeah, everyone was like exactly. king of lifts, yeah. And now, you know, true sports science and some condition at a high level, everyone's program's different. Everyone responds differently. It needs to be an individualized approach. So for example, some people won't squat. Some people might do a single leg squat. Some people might trap bar deadlift, you know, for their main lower body dominant exercise. If everyone back squats, 15, 20% of the players were just breaking down basically. So when I came in, I didn't necessarily think that because I was thinking I can 100% make a clear win straight away and right. have more players playing. Yeah. The biggest. And that's what the club wants, right? It's 100%. like they don't want people on the payroll like injured. Yeah. The biggest ability in SNC at elite level is availability. Right. And that's the thing. Everyone thinks it's strength, power, you know, whatever. Keeping them healthy, right? 100%. And how do you dovetail in with the kind of, I suppose, technical coaching and stuff like that? Do you meet and kind of like decide like where a player's at and then from a team perspective, when you're going to train and how you're going to, how how does that work on a professional level? All of that, yeah. So I've, I've experienced a few. Some coaches kind of just sit back and let you control everything performance related. And all you'll probably talk about is the sessions on the field and what they look like. So for example, as an SNC coach, we'll, we'll probably say, right, this is how long the boys really should train for today. And they should train at this intensity. And we'll measure intensity either by GPS. Yep. And we'll also measure intensity internally by rate of perceived exertion. Yeah, up here, yeah. Yeah, on like a scale. So 
based off those two metrics, we'll be able to you know dictate what the next day should look like. Is that the player's own feeling of RPE? Is that what they're telling you? Like, I feel yeah. like I'm like nine out of 10 to yeah. the game. Or? It's really important that it's from their point of view as well, rather than oh. us saying, right, today's an eight, boys. So rate it an eight, <laughs> I mean, because yeah. everyone responds slightly differently to the same session. Um, so every week we'll work back from the end goal, which is ultimately the game. And we'll plan the, the sessions for the week, depending on the game demands. So each team will bring slightly different- Oh, really? Yeah, characteristics. Oh, wow, I didn't that. Yeah. Okay. So rather than just thinking of it's 80 minutes of rugby league, if we're playing Saints or we're playing Wigan, we know that that's obviously going to be more intense game demands. Um, so we might train a little bit lighter that week. And that's called like agile and tactical periodization. Wow. So every week can be slightly different leading into the game, but every day you want to be having performance meetings with the, with the staff. So the physios and the tactical coaches, this is what we want on the field. And they'll say to, they might say to me, right, I think that we need to train a little bit longer today. We need to do a little bit more technical stuff based off the last game. So, you know, can you give us an extra 20 minutes? And I'll go, yeah, that's fine. We might, we just might need to pull back a little bit tomorrow, for example, to keep the training load, you know, right. at a certain variable. And that's, that's really important, managing that. Very data-driven role then, is it? It is. And that's why for me, I love the coaching more than the sports science. Yeah. So I, I've I've been lucky enough to like have like data scientists with me right. because the GPS side, you know, that could take three hours to analyze properly for each player, looking at the amount of accelerations, decelerations, top speed running. You know, there's there's so mm. much to it. So, but some some guys coming out of uni, that's what they want to do. The the nerds really, and but they would really struggle to stand in front of thirty players and coach them in the gym, for example. But right. they love going upstairs, analyzing the data and feeding back to the coaches. Mm -hmm. And that's just that's just the role you, you ultimately choose. So mm -hmm. yeah, very data driven though. So what was, did you feel like you needed to, I'm trying to think if I was, you know, you know, 24 and there was like a full team of professional rugby players in front of me, I was about to tell them like what they needed to do. I'll be like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. like, did you feel like you had to earn their respect or was that already kind of like- I already had, that's the thing, because I, I already had good relationships with them because mm -hmm. what happened is when I was coaching the academy, I was coaching the academy. But when I was with the first team, I was one of, one of many staff in the gym with them at a time. So I didn't have to necessarily, I didn't have to come across a certain way to them because for, for, for me then, it was just getting to know them as people. Right. So then when I, when I knew them as people on that level, mm -hmm. then when I became that guy, and the thing is I'd had good results. I'd, while I was at Huddersfield Giants, I went and worked with Oldham Rugby League who were in the division below. Yep. And for example, Oldham at the time beat a Super League club in the Challenge Cup. And everyone was like, wow, that is the shock of like the last 50 years. So. And obviously they, they'd come but and watch. Was that, sorry, but was that attributed to your kind of work then and, and getting them physically to be able to compete? I, I'd say, yeah. Like what the thing is with Oldham, I had some really good like articles written on my work, which was unbelievably rewarding because it's not often you get that in sport. Like, especially in rugby, like your job's to get them fit, fast and strong. So if they're not, then you're not doing your job well. And if mm -hmm. they are, you're just doing your job. Yeah. But all of them, like, they really could see the benefit of some of the stuff I did with him. Um, and it was publicly kind of put out there, which was which was massive for me. And yeah, like, it, it, sometimes it, it can be like, you know, you're thinking, God, there's a lot of pressure on me, you know, like there's there's a lot riding on the season, you know, every single week. It's, 
you, you, you're judged. And the thing is in, in SNC as well, sometimes it's hard to know how you're being judged as well, because sometimes there's no one above you that knows more or less about SNC, if that makes sense. And mm. ultimately, your team just might be getting beat on a weekend. It might have nothing to do with how fit they are at all. You might have pretty much your full squad available, but you just might be getting beat on all the other factors that are involved in performance. Mm -hmm. So I mean, psychology, yeah. tactics, yeah. relationships with the head coach, all of that. Right. So unless you've got like a performance manager who's really experienced at the top, who can judge you on exactly what you're doing. Because sometimes when I'm in the gym with the players, it might be a great session, or I might think it is, and the players might think it is, but mm -hmm. it, I might do, that might be the case all year, but we still might get beat nine times out of 10, you know? Right. So, and then do you lose your job because what? Because it's your fault, you know? It's just, it's the, it's one of the things in sport which makes it tough to stay in long-term if that's the setup of the place. So, I mean, I get you. you're not going to be winning every single week, no matter where you are. And, mm -hmm. and there's a few clubs that, that win more than they lose, but they've got the best players. Mm. And that's why, that's why they win more games ultimately. Mm. As much as we say, yeah, we, we have a big influence, we're a small we're a small cog in a big wheel, ultimately. This might be kind of a naive question, so forgive me, but like, what's the difference between like a personal trainer and a strength and conditioning coach? So for me, in, in kind of a, a nutshell answer to that would be an SNC coach is more focused on improving performance. So i.e. you might be working in a team sport and you're improving each player Mm -hmm. to ultimately play that sport at a greater intensity. So our goal, uh, you know, as an SNC coach isn't necessarily to write, we're trying to lose body fat or we're trying to increase a little bit of muscle mass or improve general right. kind of fitness. It's very, very specific to the sport. Performance. Yeah. Overall so performance. A hundred percent. So we've got to really understand the sport and work <clears> backwards <throat> from that. So you have some SNC, SNC coaches that are obviously experts in one sport that struggle to branch out of that because they're just so kind of fixated on that one sport. But I think a, a good kind of modern SNC coach is able to look at the needs analysis of any sport and then produce, you know, kind of physical adaptations for athletes to excel in that sport. And that's kind of the difference. And for example, a, a regular personal trainer is probably going to struggle to get someone faster technically. So look at an acceleration or a top speed running mechanics and be able to coach them or coach plyometrics really well or look at sports science or look at recovery methods. You know, a person trainer is very much right. You need to eat less calories than you burn basically to put on mass or vice versa. And it's very much specific to that one person and changing shape in terms of body right. comp, whereas not necessarily looking at a performance goal at the end of it. Mm. So... So you said like what's the what's the difference between then like a really good uh, strength and conditioning coach and like a great like top one percent strength and conditioning coach for you then? That's Putting a, you in the top one percent. That's, 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 <laughs> that's a cool question because I mean sometimes on the surface you'll say well the ones that win championships <laughs> and win trophies, but again like because of my experience in the sport now, mm -hmm. I know that that's not always the case. Like surely, surely it's the ones who keep the players the healthiest, right? Like, unable to perform at the highest level for the longest amount of time. Surely that, I would have thought. Yeah. Because uh, if you're breaking players by absolutely killing them in the gym, but they yeah. might be a bit stronger, well, that's no good, is it? 100%. So like that, that saying that I said before about availability, that is, 
that is number one. Um, but also, it's not uncommon that some of the best SNC coaches actually work with youth. It's really, oh, really? Not, yeah. It's, Why is that? Because a lot of the a lot of the SC coaches at like the top level or elite level or first team level, very good man managers of players, but they're not necessarily always the best technical coaches of exercises mm. because they're not having to coach as much. Like as I say, like at first team level, sometimes it's right, boys. We've got four lifts today. We're playing tomorrow, or we're playing in in a couple of days. They all know what they're doing. It might be four exercises that they've been doing for maybe two, three months. But at youth level, when you've got someone that's never trained before in the life, yep. they've got no idea how to hip hinge, for example, which is just like an RDL or a good morning. That can take months to develop. Or if your philosophy is very much right, I'm a big Olympic lifting fan as, a, as an s coach, for example, which I'm not, but we can talk about that later. But that's very, very technically demanding to coach, hugely. So, for example, at youth level, if you're teaching a 14-year-old how to snatch, that could take six months of really intense coaching delivery. And that might they might be a very, very good S&C coach because they're getting everyone to do that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I so it's, they actually coach more at that right. level. That's what I found. Yeah, yeah. You do more coaching at, at youth level than you do at, at first-team level. So what is your kind of philosophy around coaching? Um, around coaching, relationships first, like, mm. like we said. Um, but for me, a, a big one is just making sure you're training both ends of, of the force velocity curve, if that makes sense. So exercises that are fast, so your speed work and your speed strength work and your plyos, but then also making sure you're training the other side of the curve, which is your force. So like your max strength and your power and making sure you're surfing that curve all the way through the season, for example. Mm -hmm. Like the old fashioned way of S&C was right. We're going to train strength for two months. Periodizations. Yeah, do, yeah. do they not do that anymore then? Is that they not? They do, but in team sport, for example, you want to vertically integrate, which means you want to train multiple qualities all year round, if that makes sense. Right. Because the modern day athlete requires that. You know, like it's not like you're training. If, for example, you had one event a year, you could block it out more and go, right, first month's going to be strength, second month power, third month speed and then increase the speed as you get close to the competition. That's ultimately how periodization should work. But day one pre-season in team sport, six weeks out from the first game, you should be incorporating exercises that are, you're moving things fast from day one. You shouldn't mm -hmm. just be, you don't want to make players move slow in the gym because ultimately they'll move slow on the field. So. And so would you then within one workout have a, uh a kind of max strength based element and then players as part of your warm up and stuff like that, like general movement and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So not every day, like some SSC coaches might have Monday strength, Tuesday power, Thursday, like a max velocity type session and then play on a Saturday, for example. Whereas some coaches, as you've just said, will have exercise one strength, exercise two power, exercise three accessory work. So that's I mean, kind of how I'm programmed. So, yeah. you, Paul, if you're listening, it seems like you're doing a decent job. Yeah. So there's um, there's, there's so many ways to skin a cat in there, and it's just it's it's that it's that. Thing. Have you found that there's one way that's better? Yeah, and that's training the individual. Beautiful. So like profiling the player. So rather than going right, I'm a coach. This is my philosophy, and apply it to everyone. Mm. Well, who's to say that's right? Just because it's my philosophy, the best thing to do is profile each player. Right. What do you need physically to get better on the on the field? 
Is that more work than what most strength and conditioning coaches do though? Or, or do most actually do that? I'd like to say most do that. <laughs> I'd like to say most do that. I bet they don't. I, well, they I'm don't, sorry, I'm not doing them a disservice. Yeah. I, but I bet they don't. I bet that that level that Kane's talking about is why you were head of conditioning strength yeah. that was just at 24. Because yeah. you're going way beyond yeah, what yeah, most yeah. people are prepared to do. I think I think that it, it's hard. It's hard as well because... I, it is complicated to do as well with 30 players and to make each session their own. That is, it's a lot. It's very, very easy to just go, right, these eight players need power. These eight players need strength. But to actually mm. go, right, you need starting strength. You need accelerative strength. You need max strength. You need more player. So, I mean, to do that to each player is tough. It is, but... I believe they're the athlete. You're doing them a disservice if you're not going to that level of attention to detail, right. personally, because they are the pinnacle. So, you know, you're trying to get them better ultimately. And if you're and, not... Yeah, and I imagine there must be demands for each position that are unique. 100%. And yeah. then each person within that position will have limitations or yes. gaps in their own performance anyway. So he's Bang trying on. to see all those different bits and think, how can we get... This kind of top of the pyramid kind of point as sharp as possible. Yeah, right? that's a hundred percent right. Because each, it's obviously you've got loads of different positions in in rugby league, for example, only slightly different, you know, training factors. But also, as you say, someone might have a torn hamstring three times in the past year, but it might be an outside back that needs to run fast. So you need to manage him differently to how you manage the other outside backs. You know, so it's. But that's why you know a good high performance program. You've got multiple staff. And luckily, if you've got, you know, assistant S&C coaches that work with you, then you, you all work together. And if to do that as one person would be would be extremely tough. And it means you lose sight of the coaching and the relationships. If all you're doing is sat at a laptop writing programs, like I, like I kind of said, you lose sight of what's actually important as well. So it's finding that, that balance between individualizing as much as possible. But like I said before, having the the stupid chats with them about how the dog is and you know you, you've got to do both because mm. i've fallen into the trap of being too nerdy as well so hopefully found a happy medium now and it, it must come down to the money i mean I, I don't know if it's accurate um but i was told that there was a coach who was going to go potentially work with man united on their goalkeeping snc staff okay. and david de gea had like three coaches like specifically working on him yeah. one of the most highly paid footballers in the premier league in the world mm. the guy can't jump very well apparently for a goalkeeper yeah so like they were bringing this guy in who was an ex kind of running coach to kind of yeah. teach him how to jump yeah and this the, so like three goalkeepers have basically got an ssc coach each yeah crazy and they just teach them how to jump and these are like this guy's getting paid like 200 grand a week yeah. mental unbelievable isn't it? but that's the level some clubs are prepared to go to yeah. right yeah to make their athletes like excel yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think something we talked about last time we spoke, but um, for, you know, the personal training kind of field is like boomed. I think in like last I don't know, five or so, so years, so like, it seems like everyone I know is like mm. going into personal training. Yeah. Do you think um, <clears throat> there's a lot of failings, like a lot of new personal trainers that are, are traps they're falling into, or things that people could do better? Obviously, you've got like your mum and dad have had such a long history of personal training so you've been different it. era though yeah mm. a different era and just they've got their clients because of years of good results and um yeah there is traps short courses six-week courses that don't really assess competency 
mm. that's that's obviously a big one. Um, I just think like what what I've seen is just people that enjoy training and can't really think of anything else they want to do become PTs now. And thought that's how I kind of think it is. It's like right. well, I enjoy training. I like training myself. So what can I do that's as close as that? You know that I can earn a living from. Right. And I just think like the growth of Instagram and social media is just, it's taking it completely the wrong. Everyone's a fitness expert now. Every, you know, you, you go on Love Island and you've got a six pack and all of a sudden you've got right. 900,000 followers. Don't mean you're fit though, because you've got a six pack, does it? <laughs> it doesn't, but also the fact that like- fit to look at, but not fit, like fit, fit yeah, like, you know, get in the mountains and freeze to death with your six pack. Yeah, exactly, stuff like that. But, and they're not necessarily even qualified or they're not good coaches, but they've got loads of followers and they can put information out there and everyone believes it and they're earning good money from it. And I just think like a lot of, a lot, like I know some good, some good personal trainers that actually get very, very good results with yeah. people. But I also know some that spend 9% of the session looking at the phone or focusing on something. I never really see um, someone give three or four coaching points to a client and then they actually change what they're doing and they actually squat better or hinge better or mm. it's kind of just all I kind of see is let me count some reps so it looks like I'm kind of doing something <laughs> and then I can't wait for the hour to be up for the next for the next I don't think there's that genuine care from every PT that I actually want this person to improve you know that's, when you, that's my opinion when you're at the gym yourself do you kind of like see that like oh, this is the guy training over there but he's not really yeah. kind of like no, you'll see that easy all the time yeah. Do, yeah. you ever, do you ever like um do you ever get the feeling they're just going over there like like you need a new personal trainer man this guy's slipping your cars like that <laughs> no one's watching um probably the younger me yeah right. i'm just a bit more a bit more laid back now like i just think it is what it is like yeah so, so i mean some some as well have got a very good online profile as well they might not be great coaches but they know how to sell themselves mm. and you've got to give them credit yeah, the Nards put themselves out there well, design all these nice videos and good logos and stuff, and, and and they get people from it. And COVID in particular, with online training and stuff like that, it's just boomed, hasn't it? You know, like like PTs offering that kind of service and stuff. But good good luck to them. You know, I just I, I don't think you can necessarily throw stones or, or judge people for for doing well. But as an industry overall, yeah, I think the the standards could be better. I do, mm. um, but I think that's probably the same in most industries. Isn't mm. it? You're probably going to have, yeah. you know, there's there is a regulatory body now in personal training with like Simspa, um, which hopefully should kind of raise standards a little bit. But for me, you can't go from not doing any coaching to being a PT in six weeks and then having clients that you you train. I just think you need there needs to be more of a process in order to attain that qualification. Seems like it's such an important job, though. That's the thing. Like, yeah. when nowadays we go to like doctors for everything, right? But they don't necessarily need, know like lots about nutrition or actually like strength and conditioning work, which is like so paramount to health overall. Yeah. And then it seems like the personal trainer then fits into that that slot of like the more health side of thing rather like the preventative side. It's prehab, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's like making mm -hmm. sure you remain as healthy and as. But then, like Practice on the problem. disease side of thing, you've got like a doctor who's going to be training for like years to try to get into a medical kind of field, and then specialize from there. Yeah. And then cool. on the what I think is probably just as important the you know pre you know 
keeping strong and healthy and having a good diet. And again, that's probably something else again. Um, it's like, you, like you say, oh, it's like a six, six week course, go do this thing. It's like- I think it then, might even be less than six weeks yeah. now. And I won't be surprised if there's some now that are just online, mm. purely. Right. I mean, that's not assessing your ability to coach whatsoever, is it? Right. I mean, if you're down to the client, I would, I would suggest the, the client should be, you know, looking deeply into who it is they're putting, you know, who they're putting their health kind of in, whose hands they're putting it in, right? Like if you, yeah. if you're not checking the credentials of your coach yeah. and you're now asking them to teach you how to snatch, you're going to get injured. 100%. So guess what? That's down to you as a person, you know, it's yeah. not a quick fix. That's the problem with Instagram and stuff. It's like, I want to get fit. I need a personal trainer. You might not. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Do you need an SSC coach? Do you need no one? Or you might just need some education. Right. Exactly. Because you, know, you do it yourself. But the people go to the personal training thing because they want quick results. And this yeah. is the issue I have with all this stuff is people are so keen to get results so quick. Mm. They need to invest in the process 100%. and understand it will take years and build relationships with the coach yeah. who they can trust and move well first. Yeah. They'll start deadlifting three times the body weight and injuring themselves. It's got to be a lifestyle forever. Yeah. You know, not, I need to get abs. Or I need to fit in that dress for the wedding in June. Not 100% sustainability that's that's the key it should be a good PT or a good trainer or anyone it should be an education you should understand the why behind what you're doing not just the how and the what mm. which totally. is normally the case we squat, try and do that here don't we squat why everyone why like was this going to give me a great glutes and I'm probably not mm. it's probably not why don't I just lunge it's a lot easier a lot safer on my back you know, there's but it's like everyone needs to back squat and they don't. <laughs> um, but it's it's true and educate. It's like the Prime Minister a few months ago put something out, I've lost loads of weight, I'm eating less carbs. It's nothing to do with why you've lost weight, do you know what I mean? But yeah. if that's a type of education that's filtering through, yeah. you, you know what I mean? So there's some good people to follow if you want good information and, you, and you're someone that scrolls through Instagram for advice. Oh, just just try and get some solid advice. Read more, you know. Try and stay off the internet for looking, you know. Just there is that there is good information out there. It's probably just knowing where to go, and it's about maybe having you know a list of of, of things and resources mm -hmm. to go to as well. Do you want to say something? Well, I've got a question. It's going to take us off somewhere else. So if you're on topic, mate, mine's going to go off, off this way as well. All right, you, cool, you go ahead, All right, sir. How young should someone start training with a coach? Good question. Um, any age. It's a, it's a massive myth that if you resistance train, it stunts your growth. So that's there's absolutely zero research that supports that. Training can mean, mean anything as well, can't it? Training can mean climbing up trees, jumping over a fence. Ultimately, that's basically like climbing a rope <laughs> and it's like doing a plyometric box jump. It's the, the world is your gym. Mm. So if you've got a good coach that can periodize properly, and progressively load you any age you do, there's no you don't need to like reach puberty or anything like that obviously you've got like a growth phase that you go through and especially at an elite level when they're doing a lot of training you might just need to you know pull back a little bit of your volume and, and your intensity of what you do at a certain age when you're in that kind when, of when is that growth phase? peak height velocity it depends on everyone right. everyone's slightly different but they measure that now especially in elite level sport, they'll measure that and they'll always be measuring the height um, and they find that if, you, if you've if you shot up in a certain period, coaches should reduce volume. Um, right. Obviously, if, you, if you're not at that level and, you, and you're just training, then 
the only advice I could say if you were 11, 12 and you were already into training and you, you felt like you were shooting up a little bit, just, just pull some volume away just for a few months. You don't want to necessarily squat heavy or deadlift heavy as you're growing too much, um, especially if it's not under the control of a coach, if you're just doing it on your own. You're not quite sure what, what to look out for. But if you're at an, an academy in, in England or America or Australia, I'd suggest, with a good coach, then, yeah, you can train from any age. Tomorrow. The reason I ask is, and I always bring you back to my son, right, who's a very, very technical footballer, but has always struggled with his physicality. So a kid can do 2,000 kick-ups, but yeah. can't beat anyone in a one-to-one -one race over 20 yards. Okay. So we've... We were, were looking at a potential kind of coach to help him develop his physicality. He's not. He's one of those kids that hasn't kind of discovered how to move well yet. And right. some kids, to me, as I see him on the mat, are natural movers. Yeah, they can fall, they can yeah. move, they can roll. Yeah. And some kids haven't discovered that ability. There's mm. kind of springiness in them yet. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we're still considering, really. But uh, okay. it's understanding how, like, where to prioritize. Should you keep prioritizing technical work? So you master your craft, yeah. or should you kind of take a little bit off that and say, no, no, the weaknesses, the physicality, unless you get that to an acceptable level, you could be the most technical kid in the world. You still won't play professional football because yeah. you can't out-sprint the striker. Yeah. yeah. Where is that balance? And what age do we start to look at that? He's 11, for example. So there, there's a, a case study. 11-year-old kid, probably the best technical football you're going to find in Leeds at 11 years old. But lacks natural physicality yeah and wants to make it to that next kind of level what do we do so if you know if you know that if that's the level he's at tactically and technically right now well probably more technically if that's the level he's at you need to bring the bottom end up really until they both can go up together for me personally right. because if you look at some of the athletes coming through now in football they are good athletes now do i mean because a lot of the preparation that they do at a young level is to develop global athletic skills rather than just rather than just footballers. Like you'll get some very very good for just footballers. Look at like Phil Foden for example yep. in terms of like physically how he is. He's not tall. He's not but low center of gravity. He is quite strong. He doesn't really miss games. He doesn't get many soft tissue injuries stuff like that. So ultimately, like like we spoke up before, what is it going to come down to? Like if you feel like he's not strong enough and doesn't move well, that will probably come back to bite him in the end for for injuries when he starts playing at a, you know maybe an academy level for example, and the intensity of drills is up there. He's training loads high. If he's not moving efficiently and there's energy leaks in how he moves, he probably will break down, and that's going to put him even further back because he's not then going to be able to practice his technical stuff. So. There's loads you could be doing, but for me, for me, a big one, yeah, movement drills and, but also drills that improve movement, but have a ball in his, you know, in his foot as well. So right. change of direction and agility. So probably change of direction first, acceleration and deceleration. And that can be done anywhere with cones on a 4G service or grass and just working on his ability to accelerate and decelerate is really important. Um, and then you probably want to look at his ability to jump and land as well. Yeah, not great. So on two legs and on one leg and in all planes of movement. So forward and back, side to side and backwards. And then you just want to like tick him off, right? Well, he's done this. He can decel well now. He can land on two legs. He can land on one leg. He can jump and rotate in the air and land on one leg and his knees not turning in and there's no valve, all of that type of stuff. So it's, 
it's technical, but it's more than doable. And the earlier you start, the better for me personally. Perfect. Well, that was actually really interesting. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's so any anyone listening who's got a kid in ARPA program, same same applies, right? You know, we can develop yeah. them to a point. Yeah. I'm not an SNC specialist, nor are you. If you want that level of um, support and athleticism in your child, you need to speak to someone like Kane, who clearly knows his shit, mm. and we don't. Yeah. And um, Kane, you got yourself a, a little studio very close to the academy, of course. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's it's primarily my dad's, my dad's little venture because obviously this is only the first year I've been out of sport for about the last eight. So just while I'm back in Leeds, um, I'm using that as well with him. And it's, it's, it's well kitted out to be fair and it's, it's private. So like what we spoke about before in terms of if you want to, if you just want to come and have a session that's set out, ready to go and it, what's, what's kind of planned is what's then done. It's great because it's private. There's no one else there, plenty of equipment. Because, you know, there's nothing worse than going into a gym at a peak time. If you can only train at five o'clock in an evening in a local gym in Leeds now, and the, the PT's got six, six maybe exercises planned or whatever, and you can only do three of them, you know, you, you're going to come away thinking, well, it's a bit of a waste of time. So I think it's important to, when you train, to have a good space that's that's private as well. So I think that's that's important. Sure, man. Is there, um, we'll kind of close this up, but I wanted to ask um, before was, um, with a technical sport kind of like jiu-jitsu, right? Um, and we talk oftentimes about the parallels between jiu-jitsu and rugby and oftentimes yeah. how former rugby players all, uh, they've had that kind of community from rugby, but they've stopped playing now and they come to yeah. jiu-jitsu. It's a big crossover. Is there any kind of stuff that you see like within combat sports or jiu-jitsu? Um, I'm not sure how much you follow, but... Um, that you think, oh, you know, those guys would be would find this kind of exercise quite beneficial. All right, so, so try and answer it quite briefly. But so if I if I break it down to like conditioning first, I think probably what I'd say from just pro- pro- probably from the outside is the like the sport, especially combat sports in particular, like performing the sport will take care of a lot of the conditioning. It really will. Like yeah. for most people off the street, doing a session in jiu-jitsu yeah. is conditioning. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I mean, so call it rolling fit. Like yeah, you know I mean, you gotta be rolling. Hundred percent. So for someone then wanting to compete at that level, yeah, they're gonna have a, a good level of fitness anyway. If they're getting more and more specific and they're fighting someone at a good level, then obviously you're gonna have to do a little bit of work and conditioning. And the thing that I would say to avoid is performing conditioning bouts that are the same bouts in terms of duration that you do in training or when you spar. So for example, if it's two minutes on, one minute off, don't make all your conditioning two minutes on, one minute off because you're already getting that. So mm. to be really specific, like there's there's primarily a few different energy systems that are involved in, in kind of fitness. You really want to be training like the alactic power and alactic capacity. So what I mean by that is you want to be, for example, going on an assault bike or battle ropes or a rower and maybe doing something like, you know, five to 10 seconds of max effort with then really, really good recoveries so that you're pretty much fully recovered and then you can go again. So that would be like elastic power work. So it might be 10 seconds on, 50 seconds off because it's training an energy system that you're not getting from, from normal training. So that's really important. 
you can then make that more alaptic capacity, which is just increasing the time you work for by maybe five seconds and reducing the time off. So it might be 15 seconds on 45 seconds rest. And you might want to do that for two weeks. Then you might want to work more on the lactic side of it. So that's when you produce lactic acid and that's the thing that's going to kill you, you know, in, in sport really, that's like the devil, but you still need to train it. That might be more things like 20 to 40 seconds rest with probably around about 90 seconds recovery for power development. And the capacity stuff is probably between 30 seconds to two minutes worth of work with about a minute rest. So if you're training those four things in particular, probably in that order as well in towards a fight, it just means that you're training the opposite energy system to what you're getting in training. And that's going to give you like a well-rounded conditioning base to, right. to perform, if that makes sense. That's interesting, yeah. So, and then, yeah, for me, I'll go specific. Um, staggered and split stance exercises. So, zerches where you're on one leg, basically, or like a good morning or a split stance squat or a med ball throw from a split kneeling position, lunges, single leg work. That That's the key, really, I would say, for any kind of combat sport. Like, yeah, you need to get strong on two legs, but you want to create the angles that you're going to, you're going to be in during throws or, you know, stuff like that. You want to create those angles in the gym as much as possible and load them. And so for me, anything on one leg or staggered or split stance is important. And then rotation as well. So are you, your ability to brace, rotate and anti-rotate as well. So those three things. So rather than just holding a plank for five minutes, that's not going to quite cut it. You need mm. to be able to resist rotation you also need to be able to produce rotation. So that might be like med ball throws, you know, against that wall and against that wall, stuff like that. So you're actually moving. Right. Um, and then general point of view, yeah, you need to move well, ultimately. If you can't move well, nothing else, it's that, that's the pyramid. Think of a big base, you know, and obviously the steeper the peak, the wider the base. So general movements, you need to be able to squat, hinge, pull and press, you know, ultimately at a good level and then build up the pyramid and then start doing your staggered stance, your split stance. And it just builds up and builds up like that. So that's kind of what I'd say in a, in a nutshell for that. That's oh, awesome. And very, 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 well, exactly what you say is exactly what I get programmed for my ocean world. Exactly that. All those things are in the program. And Paul, my performance coach, talks about that building the widest base. Yeah. But kind of not trying to replicate exactly what you've said. Because I, and from a less experienced perspective, I'm saying to him, Paul, I need to be on the row more. I need to row more. So, dude, we can't replicate an ocean row in the gym. Yeah. We can just make you more robust and more round across all planes of movement. Yeah. And you're prepared then no matter what happens out there. Yeah. And in grappling, it's the same thing. You've got to get rolling fit, but you don't know where your body's going to be in that fight. So let's make sure you're robust across every single 100%. angle all the time. That's so important. Because a lot of people in the gym, they just stand in one plane and they just lift, squat, hinge, whatever. Are they moving that way in the frontal plane? Are they moving that way as well in the transverse plane? So rotational ability is massively underutilized in SNC for me. Like the ability mm. to rotate and anti-rotate, as like you say, move side to side as well as just forward and back is so important for sports. Going from the sports, the last question for you, Kane. You, know, you come from like a, a good martial arts background and your dad's done martial arts all his life and stuff. What for you does it mean to be a martial artist? Um, I, I think more than anything, like we alluded to before, is just kind of 
almost the respect from your peers as well. It doesn't, I don't think it matters what level you're at and stuff like that, like in terms of using it to to fight people on the street. And I just can't stand any of that. I think that actually, I think the true like martial artists avoid that anyway. And I just think that the more concerned about the discipline it gives you in your life. And I think for me growing up, having that just, I don't know, it just gave me like a, an underlying sense of confidence as well that you can't, I don't think you can get out of much else. You just like, it's a real, you know, for that hour that you train or that two hours that you're training, like you feel like some of the pain you go through in training or in fights prepares you really well for any other adversity that you might find in, in your life. And I think it, if there's one reason why I can say like get into martial arts, it's because if you get into it and you develop that discipline and respect and stuff like that, you'll find challenges in your life don't necessarily compare to some of the some of the adversity and challenges that you might face during your sessions as well. Obviously, you know, there's some stuff out in life that's gonna gonna really test you. You know, obviously, and it, and it will test anyone. But I think when you've got that to kind of fall back on and you 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 push your boundaries as well, I think that's important. There's, there's not a lot of stuff that will push your boundaries as much as you know, real kind of competitive martial arts session. So I think for me, it's just giving me that that kind of mindset. And yeah, it's been it's been a big part of my, my life, so. Awesome, cheers, Kane. Yeah. Good to have you on, man. No worries. No um, worries. Everything, uh, you know, Kane's Instagram, Kane it to condition, right? Yeah, a bit cheesy. I've got a little, <laughs> got a little Instagram page, so it's Kane it to condition. Um, and then, yeah, just, normal Instagram just Kane Daniels 91 but I'm not as I, like we spoke quite in this I'm not massive on social media but um if you want to talk we can we can do that I'm happy to do that sure all the links for anything uh, to get in touch with Kane will be in the description and um really professor man love that love that I think we're gonna have to do Real. some work together cool Real. cheers Kane spot on see you guys